Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, our guest, Aaron Ross. He is the co-CEO of Predictable Revenue, Inc., and the author of the very famous book by that same name. He's also the author of a book called From Impossible to Inevitable. So welcome, Aaron. Thanks, Jeremy. Happy to be here. Since I'm a huge reader, I selfishly ask the question, what's your favorite sales and or leadership book and why? You know, I haven't actually read a new leadership book in a while, but one of the original ones that was the most impactful on my own career was called Wooden about John Wooden, who was, the, I believe, the most successful college basketball coach ever. And what I loved about it was it really wasn't about basketball. It was really his management style of managing the team to enable them to win so many championships year after year as the players changed and everything else. And one example was practice hard, win easy. He didn't say it that way. I've seen that on t-shirts now, but you know, if you practice hard, makes it easy win. It's all about the practice. If you do the practice the right way, you won't even have to worry about the game. And sales and business, so applicable. That's one I have not read, which is somewhat rare. And I'm looking at the blue book. The co-author there is Steve Jameson. The next thing I think to just give people a little bit of perspective on folks is to reflect on the first thing that you ever sold. Yeah. The first thing that I ever sold that I remember when I was like in ninth grade and a friend of mine and I, we went around house to house selling people on painting their numbers on the curb, put their you know, house number on the curb. And for, I don't know, it was five or 10 bucks. Did you feel like you knew what you were doing or did you learn anything in that process? I don't think so. I think it was just doing something. I will say that I have a 16-year-old daughter who, when she was 10, 11, 12, she typically would say, hey, dad, can you take me to donuts? And I'd say, no, you know, no. And then at some point, because, you know, I, I work with on how to coach her, how to sell to mom, <laughs> and she'd come back to me. And at some point, she'd say, hey, dad, you know, when we go to donuts, like those are some of the happiest times of my life. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to treasure these memories. So she sold me on uh, going to donuts. I knew what she was doing, but like that, well done. She got me. Well, let's get into building successful outbound teams. And I know one of the new examples that's in your impossible to inevitable refresh is about SageMon. So can you frame up who SageMon is and what they were trying to accomplish? Yep. A lot of people have heard about the predictable revenue book. There's a sequel called From Impossible to Inevitable, and a new version's coming out with a bunch of updates. It's really a growth book for your CFO, chief revenue, chief marketing. It's like that C-level group to how do you understand what stops a company from growing? Why do companies stagnate or plateau? How do you break those plateaus, grow faster, and how do you keep it up? So one of the new case studies is about a private equity firm called Bergal Stage Mount. Their premise is, hey, we're going to go in and triple your, the valuation of the company in three years. So if the enterprise valuation is $100 million today, we want to get it to $300 million in three years. And what's interesting is that from their data is that there are different ways they can increase the value. So infrastructure, technology, the company, pricing and packaging, bundling, acquisitions, you know, like buying other companies and combining them together. But the number one way that SageMount increases the valuation of companies is through organic sales growth. They said 70% when they grow a company's valuation, so they take it from 100 million to 300 billion, 70% of that increase comes from ramping up the organic sales growth, which means the company has a lead gen system and a sales team and they're doing their own thing. 
right? They're not just buying other companies to increase the top line. There's these three metrics that they really focus on. Number one is for more leads. Number two, perfect meetings, more perfect meetings. And number three, world-class follow-up. You know, more leads, better meetings with those leads and following up. And that is sort of the, the number one way that they focus on driving, increasing organic growth, the sales growth of these companies. I view that as being much more effectiveness or productivity focused than necessarily capacity focused, right? It's not just about more salespeople. It's a lot more about being more effective with the salespeople that you already have. Yeah. There's a company, an IT services company in Heartland they bought and they put in $40 million. And this company, you know, they had six salespeople, sort of generalists doing everything. And they, most of their leads are coming from organic sources, right? Referrals. They also had like partners and channels and inbound. And typically had to specialize the sales teams. So they hired some sales prospectors. And so they're sort of taking it, they're redesigning, you know, what you've got first. And then once that's working, you can say, okay, now we can hire more for more capacity. We can add more AEs. Or if it's, we have an outbound system, we can add more outbound SDRs. Adding just more people is not step one. Building an inbound funnel with even within a three-year time frame is easier said than done. So I would presume that most of that more leads is, is outbound based. Is that correct? Primarily, yes. They're not going to build a content or inbound funnel from scratch typically. They will do things like, of course, analyze PPC spend and sort of optimize what they're already doing. But outbound is a main driver. First stop and call it backcast. You might say, how is the funnel working today? If we want to triple our valuation in three years, we'll work backwards to what kinds of revenue and profit goals should we be hitting at that time. And then again, backcast towards what should our sales activities look like, whether it's like prospecting activities, how many meetings, close rates. And then you get into, with, of course, the lead gen, the outbound system they're going to do, it always depends market by market, but social calls and emails, right? The typical stuff. And by the way, at the beginning, we said, hey, we're not necessarily getting into the emails and calling. I mean, the email technique and the phone technique and social technique, all those are really important. But I feel like people put 80% of the weight of like what's going to be successful on. What's my email template? And people don't really understand or value enough kind of the fundamentals and the foundation of the outbound system as a whole they need to design in order to not only get meetings, but to keep getting meetings and keep getting qualified meetings to actually turn into revenue. What do you think the elements of the system that people overlook are that are not obvious? I'll start with a simple one, comp structure. People pay on meetings or activities. If you're paying on calls and emails, or if you're paying on just scheduled, even scheduled meetings, you're going to get more. You need to comp based on accepted meetings or qualified opportunities. You know, there's all kinds of different lingo, but it means that a meeting happened and the salesperson, if it's a prospector passing to a salesperson, the salesperson accepted it and they requalified it. And there's some kind of consistent criteria, even if it's simple, for what that means. Because there's a lot of subjectivity in outbound because we are passing batons. You know, was this qualified or not? Does it count or not? And a lot of times, salespeople who see their prospectors working really hard for them will want to do a favor for the prospectors. And they don't really understand that when you do that, you're starting to eat away at the integrity of the whole system because if the prospectors think they can get away, whether consciously or unconsciously, with kind of half-assed prospects and appointments, they're going to pass them over. If they know they can't get away with half-assed quality, they're going to do a better job, either finding or qualifying things to pass to the salespeople. 
I did want to go deeper into your effectively an AE doing a solid for the SDR. Yeah. What do you recommend to prevent that from happening? Well, we always recommend. By the way, we're after this. There's like the biggest mistake, but there's a lot of these kind of subtle, non-obvious problems that kind of rot that can rot the results out from underneath under the covers. And this is one of them. What you have to do is have an audit system. You can't get away from that. You have to have it. And there's a lot of reasons why. There's this need for that consistency of like, what does qualified mean? And no matter what you write on paper, people won't get it. So you need to audit that, which means you check every single opportunity that people want to claim for outbound quota credit. When it was a smaller team, I would do it myself. And as the team got bigger, then I would have like a peer system where kind of the experienced SDRs would first check the junior ones, their opportunities. Like, are there notes in the CRM system? Was there actually a live phone call that the salesperson had with the prospect? Because sometimes people would kind of accept it over email. No, you have to have a phone call or a meeting. Were the opportunity, you know, the fields in the CRM set the right way? And so there's these kind of checks to make sure that not only was it kind of count for uh, an outbound opportunity and it's qualified, but the data and the system was set correctly. One of the issues we had to deal with too was attribution. If you have any kind of size of SDR team, you'll know what I'm saying, which is outbound SDRs will be emailing or calling to companies. Sometimes the companies won't respond to the prospector. They'll go to your website and register as a lead on the website. It'll come into the inbound funnel and an inbound SDR or MR, market response rep, will grab that lead. If they don't know to dedupe it and check, they might end up treating it as an inbound lead incorrectly. So attribution is part of another thing this audit process can help check is, was it this a truly an outbound opportunity? Because there's these gray areas between inbound and outbound that get more and more gray as you get bigger and bigger and bigger. So there's all these reasons where you have to have an audit system checks every single opportunity before it gets counted for quarter credit. By the way, one thing I found helped with this was we moved a little while back from round robin to two to two matching, so small pods. Round Robin has the great aspect of being highly resilient with people coming and going and different levels of quality variation amongst both the AEs and the SDRs, but it does lead to basically crappy ops being generated. And if you've got that one-to-one or two-to-two maximum, I feel, you get that alignment so that much better ops are being flipped to begin with. And then the AE is giving feedback to the SDR, hey, that was a good one, do more of that, hey, that was a bad one, do less of those, right? So that really helps the SDR develop to become a better AE eventually themselves. True. And I think people don't realize how vital that relationship between the outbound SDR and salesperson is. The AE is you know, helping point them in the right direction with like which companies are list, mentoring, messaging, coaching, ideally. And when the SDR knows, when they know each other, they have a better sense of like what works for the AE in terms of like the kind of prospect, the scheduling. You really don't want to do round robin as you get off the ground. You want to have that relationship where one SDR is tied to a specific number of salespeople. Yeah, totally agreed. Well, you hinted before at the biggest problem. I don't know if we're there yet or we got to keep that tease going. Okay, so here's the biggest one is that, was it like 75%? There's some huge number of SDR teams have blended roles where there's SDRs who are doing inbound and some version of inbound and outbound for the vast, vast majority of B2B companies and everyone listening to this podcast, you have to separate them. The thing is, the jobs are completely different. The metrics are similar, calls, emails, meetings, close rate. The jobs are completely different. 
think about an inbound SDR. Their job is really to respond to these inbound leads, and those leads probably within minutes or hours or a day need to be responded to. So that cycle, that, that rhythm is very fast. And the kinds of conversations are totally different. Oh, hey, yes, you're looking at our website. You, you know us. You're already interested in us. Great. The outbound job is a rhythm that takes you know weeks, two to four weeks to go from sort of a cold account to having accepted opportunity. So they're completely different jobs. It's kind of get lumped together just because they just happen to share some similar metrics and they're both junior roles. But that's the number one thing that will hurt your outbound effort. So the best outbound prospectors and teams really are doing at least 80%, more like 90% or 100% outbound. As soon as you can, you need to separate those roles, the inbound lead response from the outbound prospecting. All of our inbounds are routed and the routing is one of two directions. One is we already have an SDR or an AE engaged with an account and an inbound comes in and then we route it to that person. Otherwise, we route it where if we're not otherwise engaged with them, we do route it to the inbound person. And that person is a pure inbound. When the person's already engaged, we route it. But we, you know, since we're using a, a sales engagement system, that first email basically that goes out within moments, under a minute, basically, is still automated. Part of the, the training for inbound SDRs is the deduping. So let's say you're working with Red Hat, but then someone from IBM comes in. Okay, IBM bought Red Hat. So they're part of the same company. They may or may not be part of the same project team you're talking to, but there's so many situations that technology is not going to catch all that. And the inbound SDRs still need to double check that lead. Is there something else going on? Should I call them or not? There's the conventional wisdom that you should respond within five minutes, but the op generation rate is just as good if you respond within an hour. By the way, yeah, okay, let's, we, let's blow this lie up. This whole five-minute thing, come on. So here's where it does work. If you're in a consumer commoditized market, where okay, so someone puts a lead form in. I want to buy office chairs, and they're all the same, okay? And it goes to four people for quotes. The first person who calls me back, I'm going to just go with because I don't want to deal with it. On the flip side, you're looking for a procurement system. You're looking for a BDB system where the product matters and the people matters. I, I just don't buy it. I'm not going to take the first person who calls me because I'm trying to solve a system that may or may not be yours. I'm going to have to talk to more than one person. Sometimes it can be true, but don't take that as gospel because it's not. Mom, I'm a soapbox. One other lie. By the time you talk to buyers, 70% of their buying cycle is already done. Really? Okay, yes, true for inbound leads. That is not true at all for outbound ones, because by definition, you're going to catch them before they're thinking about things. You want to catch people before they're through their buying cycle, right, for their valuation. So by definition, outbound is not true. And these stats get thrown out. People go, oh my God, we have to be five minutes calls, or we have to, that's not true. The internet just spreads all these messages, whether they're valuable or not. And people, you got to use your, your, your judgment as to when they fit you or not. And sometimes you only know by testing it, by trying it and saying, hey, did that actually work or not? You know, a lot of people who promote these stats sell tools to enable you to take advantage of that, right? So the people who promote the five-minute call response are the people who sell technology that calls prospects within five minutes. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying, you know, you got to you take it with a grain of salt. Be an educated buyer. And don't take it at face value always, because especially in B2B, most areas of B2B, you don't need to call people within five minutes. You don't need to. It's not necessarily bad, but you don't have to have a panic attack if you're not doing that. 
You just need to not be in the 10% who never call back. For sure. There you go. There's some of these companies that they never call you back. They don't follow up at all. And uh, that's, that's a much bigger problem I would deal with rather than trying to get people to get callbacks within five minutes. Going back to the, where we started with SageMount, one of their things was more leads. Another one was perfect meetings. And then the third was the world-class follow-up. Let's talk briefly about perfect meetings. What does that mean? So more leads, which really means for them, more outbound prospecting. The technique doesn't always matter, but get the, the team up and running, more, more calls and emails and social to the right kinds of customers. Because it's just as important that they kind of nail their niche and target the right kinds of customers who are going to buy, not just more people in general. So then the next one, perfect meetings. Really what they do is this, uh, they go back and do a lot of call reviews and call scoring. They really will listen to call recordings of salespeople week after week after week. And they've got a bunch of criteria. There's a whole chart in the new From Impossible to Inevitable book where they'll rank things like rapport, pitch quality, deal sizing. And they give them like a zero, one, or two. But it's really that slow process of how are they doing calls, what's going well, what's not going well, and how do we improve them to get to that perfect meeting. There's lots of AI in those types of tools or machine learning or if then else logic, whatever you want to, however you want to classify it. But in my experience, the most valuable thing as a seller is simply to get the qualitative feedback from an expert. And the AI can't yet do that. There's no shortcut. I mean, a lot of those tools to be helpful, but not a replacement at all for the call coaching. And sorry, in that last step, world-class follow-up is really using a sales engagement tool like a sales loft to help automate things so there's less remembering what to do, fewer tasks. And of course, you know, working on the sequences and emails and, and steps with there, like how to systematize the follow because just not enough of it happens, especially at the sales level. I am curious, right? Since you're a, you know, one of the key strategic thinkers in this space, you know, as you think about what's next, right? If you were going to write another book after Impossible to Inevitable, what do you think is the big topic that is of interest next? One of the sections of the From Impossible to Inevitable book is called Forcing Functions. How do you get yourself to do the things you don't want to do? I got married and grew my income by 11 times while going from zero to nine kids and writing books and growing a multi-million dollar business all at the same time. How did I survive that? The only way that I was able to do that really was kind of forcing functions by which, for example, to write a new book, the best way for me to actually do that is to tell people I'm going to write it, right? I announce it on social media or, or ideally with a name and a date. I'm going to write this book by when? publicly announcing some kind of commitment because that public shame for most of us is such a great motivator and like, no, I got to do it. The forcing functions for me have been the number one thing in my life the past 10 years that have increased income to close to a million dollars and this family from zero to nine. And I, I only work most weeks, 15 to 20 hours a week. So I do have to pay the bills. I have a huge family, huge expenses. So writing all these books, kind of doing all this stuff, it's this forcing functions because otherwise I just, you know, like everyone else, I'll procrastinate, I'll diddle around. Other one could be a book or something combining parenting and career. Like how do you make money while being a better parent? Rather than choosing, I can either make more money or I could be a good parent. How can I combine both? So I'm doing the best of both worlds. On the parenting and career side, by the way, we both got, you know, kids who are, I think you got your oldest are 20, my oldest is 18. And, you know, it's just a learning journey every day. Yeah, every, it's not like being an entrepreneur or a parent is every day is a new day and whatever worked yesterday may not work today. 
I think that business in general, I, to me, this, there's this confusion. Like, why don't companies and conferences acknowledge the fact that people with families have, it's a huge part of their lives. We just kind of ignore it. There's some conferences that keep saying, hey, why don't we do, why don't you do some tracks around like parenting and like, you know, how that affects people's success and career and make money and they just get nothing. I think that might be the next evolution, right? Which is how to be a great, whatever it is, salesperson, sales leader and parent as well. So I think that's a super great topic. When you get married, especially when you have kids, you can give up most of your vices and you have to buckle down to get your act together and focus on making money and like being a good provider and parent and spouse. I know that happened for me eight years ago. I got married and I just had to, I had to like get my life together in a much more fundamental way than I had before. You can find Aaron in a bunch of places, but I strongly recommend uh, the book he co-wrote with Mary Lou Tyler, Predictable Revenue, his update of From Impossible to Inevitable. And then hopefully we get to see those other two books, The Forcing Functions and The Parenting and Career. I'm guessing the best way for people to reach you is via LinkedIn. Is that the usual deal? I think you need my email to connect or reach out. Aaron, A-A-R-O-N at predictablerevenue.com. For us, like as the business of me, predictablerevenue.com is the best site the book itself from impossible.com. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.